When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Well, welcome back to another episode of Parker's Pensies. This is a podcast dedicated to exploring thoughts in philosophy, theology, nature, and life. I love thinking about cool stuff, so come think with me. On today's episode, we're talking epistemology, and specifically religious epistemology, with my guest, Dr. Tyler McNabb. Dr. Tyler McNabb is an assistant professor at St. Joseph University, Macau. McNabb has authored religious epistemology, co-authored Plantingian Religious Epistemology and World Religions, and co-edited and contributed to Debating Christian Religious Epistemology, uh, and that's a a Bloomsbury uh, Press book. McNabb has also authored and co-authored a dozen papers in journals such as Religious Studies, European Journal of Philosophy of Religion, and the Haythrop uh, Journal. Tyler also has a podcast on YouTube called Furthering Christendom. Tyler, thanks for coming on the podcast, man. Hey, thank you very much for inviting me. It's uh, uh, it's great that we can finally talk, you know, kind of like face-to-face instead of just through fa- uh, ironic Facebook posts. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> so so Tyler, uh, he, this guy's a funny character because he's he's this well-respected philosopher and he's also a millennial. And so this is a this is a rare combination, at least at least right <laughs> now. But I want to explain a, a funny a funny thing that happened to me. So last semester, I'm in religious epistemology course here with uh, here at Ted's with Dr. Harold Netland, and uh, we're talking Great Pumpkin objection to Plantinga's epistemology, and you know whether any work's been done to argue against other religions. And Dr. Netland goes, "Yeah, you know, there's there's some Plantingians in, in the field doing work on this. You know, there's this guy uh, Tyler McNabb, and he's working on that." And I, I chuckled to myself because to all these guys, this is this well-respected philosopher. To me, this is the guy who, an hour before class, I saw his Dragon Ball Z meme <laughs> on Facebook. And so it's like, yes, he's, it's the best of both worlds, and, and you're representing uh, millennials well. Well, that's very, very, very kind of you to say. And, and uh, yes, I watched an episode yesterday as I was eating dinner. So <laughs> uh, I love that. So I, I grew up, uh, all my friends love Dragon Ball Z. I didn't have cable. And so the only place I could find it was on the Spanish channel. So I got to watch nice. Dragon Ball Zeta and try to <laughs> interpret. I never actually learned Spanish from it, but so I, it's, it's so awesome, man. Like being a, a dad. So like my, my t- two boys, uh, like I buy them to- Dragon Ball Z and Marvel toys. And like last night I went out and got them. They, they have Dragon Ball Z is quite big here in Macau. Okay. And so, um, uh, I went out and bought them this little, like, uh, uh, stadium for Dragon Ball Z characters to put be place on in their room and so forth and get to watch it and experience it all over again with the kids. And it's just, so awesome being a dad so yeah man that's uh, huge yeah i love that um so so today 
today's conversation has to do with epistemology, which is a theory of knowledge. And while epistemology can kind of, it can sound scary to the uninitiated, it kind of sounds esoteric, it actually has a lot of practical ramifications. And so to demonstrate this, I wanted to start with two practical questions for Tyler and have him answer yes or no, and then go over the deep philosophical underpinnings, which led him to give those answers. Tyler, sound, sound cool? Sounds good. All right. So uh, can I know what I ate for breakfast this morning if I can't prove what I ate for breakfast this morning? What do you think? Yes. 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 Okay. And then can belief in God be rational without rational argumentation? Yes. All right. But I know it's probably taken some restraint from him because he's a philosopher and he wants to demonstrate why. So, <laughs> so let's do that. Let's let's get in. So initially here, uh, what what's epistemology? All right. So epistemology uh, formally, more formally, is like the study of knowledge. Um, but even more broadly, it's the study of basically epistemic status. And so you know, whether a belief is what philosophers call justified or rational, right, whether it's warranted, uh, whether it constitutes knowledge. And so it's kind of, it, it, it explores um, these sorts of uh, com- concepts. And so religious epistemology would be sort of applying these categories to specifically religious belief and practice. And okay. so, uh, yeah. So uh, uh, another, to follow up on religious epistemology. So I took, um, I, I've taken a lot of courses from Netland and uh, we, were, we were talking about philosophy of religion in one of the courses and he teaches a lot of those. And someone goes, you know, this seems like it's philosophy of Christian religion. <laughs> and Netland was explaining, it, it came out of Christianity and now it's starting to move. You got Yandel who worked in like Buddhism a little bit. And now it's starting to move into other religions, but historically it's been like natural theology kind of stuff. Is that the same case for religious epistemology that it started with mm. Christians and that's why um, it, it's folks or, or, or not so much? Yeah. Yeah. So you're asking an analytic philosopher about history, you know? And so, <laughs> no, uh, no, I mean, there, there's, there's uh, great religious traditions within Islam and Judaism and Christianity and, and Hinduism and Buddhism, and you get epistemology in all of these categories as well. Uh, in fact, I think that there's a lot in common with Kant's epistemology, Immanuel Kant's epistemology, yeah. with a lot of Eastern religious traditions. Mm. Uh, so I actually think they beat Immanuel Kant <laughs> uh, yeah. to to a lot of his points that uh, we Westerners think that typically that that's where that started. Um, so so yeah, I, I, I would say that in the 20th 21st century, obviously. Uh, work done in religious epistemology is oftentimes done from a Judeo-Christian sort of standpoint. Yeah. Um, there, there's some some uh, interesting philosophers uh, coming up who have really interesting things to say and, and uh, who aren't Christians. Mm-hmm. Um, but I would say uh, in reference to uh, the majority of the work done in the last, uh, you know, since the 20th, 21st century time frame uh, would be, those who are broadly within the Christian tradition, or at least atheists working yeah, primarily right. with within mind, you know, sort yeah. of the Judeo-Christian tradition. Totally. Okay. That makes sense. All right. Moving on here. So um, what's knowledge? What is knowledge? All right. So I take knowledge. It's going to be, uh, how, how much you want me to get into this? How, how much um, like, do you want me to give like a really quick, short answer? Yeah. Or do you quick, want me to explain? quick, quick, short. Okay. Cause we're going to go in a little bit more okay. later. I take it to be warranted true belief. That's what I think knowledge is. Okay. All right. And we're going to get into warrant and justification just right. in, in a second. So okay. uh, so then how about belief? What, what's belief? Uh, for our purposes, we can understand belief as affirming a proposition. So 
proposition, true or false statement. You're affirming whether something is true or not. And so, you know, that's what a belief is. Yeah. Okay. It's so funny that everything is so uh, specialized. So you can even go into that and say like true and false right. statements. You can be a deflationary, uh, you right. can give a deflationary right. account, all this crazy stuff. So for our listeners, um, we're giving like just base level. Right. There's lots right. of stuff. And, and, and there's epistemologists who will, will take, uh, who, who, who will uh, uh, be, be against the sort of definition I just gave, right? There's right. some epistemologists who are like, well, there are no good definitions of what a belief <laughs> is, right? I mean, so, <laughs> Uh, right. But that's sort of a generic account of what a belief yeah. is, the, one that I'm fine with. Okay. So then moving on uh, to justification. What, what is justification? And, and so warrant I, maybe even too. You, you can understand justification in uh, different ways. Uh, my preference of understanding justification is primarily like through understanding duty, right? Mm. So deontologically uh, for, for those uh, who are listening who do a little bit of philosophy. Yeah. So uh, are you within your right, basically, in affirming the proposition in question? Uh, or have, have you committed epistemic sin, mm, <laughs> right? Yeah. Are you being epistemically irresponsible with your belief-forming process? And so uh, that, that's kind of how I understand justification. It's more about being within your right um, and believing something. Warrant, uh, I take as something more interesting. Mm. Um, warrant is basically the special ingredient that turns... Um, your true belief into knowledge. And so you can have true belief, but yet not know something, right? So um, let's say that uh, you, you took a pill that's known for um, giving you sorts all sorts of crazy beliefs, right? And you're like, yeah, I'm just going to take it. I don't care. Let's see what belief I form, right? <laughs> and, uh, you take it. Yeah. And then you, you form the belief that the next person you run into is going to give you a million dollars, and you just so happen to be walking across someone's path that, you know, uh, is going to give you a million dollars, you know, completely mm-hmm. and not connect it with a pill, not connect it with your, you know, your belief in any way. I mean, it's just pure accident. Right? Yeah. And so uh, generally epistemologists take the sort of attitude that if you have enough luck in the situation, luck acts as an acid and it mm-hmm. sort of dissolves the knowledge Um and so uh, you can have a true belief and be really lucky, but yet you, you don't know. And so the sort of special ingredient, as uh, one of my former students said, the special sauce, you know, yeah. you add that special sauce to that true belief and it, it, it turns into knowledge, you know, voila. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, that's, that's, that's the idea of warrant. And so there's a particular account of warrant so people can debate about, how, I, I want this property. It's a pretty cool property, right? Mm-hmm. How do I get this property? <laughs> I want all my beliefs to possess this. Property. Yeah, I want that special sauce, man. Exactly, exactly. And so I have a particular account that I defend uh, that was um, given by Alvin Plantiga. Okay. Yeah, we're gonna we're gonna jump in deep on that right right before that. Um, so what you just brought up was a Gettier case, right? Mm. And and so uh, well, so it might not be a Gettier case because maybe you don't think that I'm within my right. In oh yeah, right. Because of the so so. But here would be a, a, a non-controversial Gettier case, a, yeah. a one that I think uh, almost everyone will, will agree on. Um, let's go ahead and say that uh, you uh, are in Scotland. I lived in Scotland for a few years uh, doing my PhD there. And there's a lot of sheep in Scotland. Okay. And uh, let's say you're just really excited about sheep. I don't know. Maybe you even have like a T-shirt with sheep on it. You know, you've got <laughs> you've got um, 
uh, binoculars, you know, you're, you're excited, you're, you're ready to go and to, to encounter some sheep. And uh, you're in that sort of environment where you expect to see lots of sheep. Mm. And all of a sudden you're being appeared to sheeply. <laughs> yep. there, there, there appears to be a, a strong experience call it a seeming that leads you to, to affirm the proposition that there's a sheep in front of you. Mm-hmm. Now let's go ahead and say there really is a sheep in front of you, but here's the, here's the caveat. You're actually not seeing a sheep. You're seeing a dog that looks very much like a sheep yeah. and behind that dog that looks very much like a sheep is an actual sheep. So it is the case that there is a sheep in front of you, Yeah, but not for the reason you think. <laughs> yeah. And so here's the case where it seems like you're justified. You're within your right in affirming the proposition. You know, you're in Scotland and you're being a peer too sheeply. You know, what's yeah. not to, <laughs> uh, what, what more is required? And, and it's true belief. But yet again, something so accidental in this scenario makes it seem like you don't possess knowledge. Yeah. Okay. So there, here's a, a case that I wanted to bring up with you. I, I should have mentioned earlier. So, um, I saw this great meme. This dude was like uh, probably a master's student in philosophy because they make weird jokes like this. But he's like, uh, uh, when I'm on Zoom, I use my I took a screenshot or I took a shot of my background here and I use that as my background. So when people are looking (laughs) at my Zoom profile, they're seeing my background, but it's not my background. Is that is that a Gettier case? Yeah, yeah. that that would be. He said he wants to to give Uh, all his philosophers. not true or true <laughs> beliefs that aren't justified or warranted. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I saw that meme as well. And I cracked up so hard. I love that meme. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So okay. yeah, that, I, I think I love that. Would be a, case, yeah. I have, um, so I get fired up that you're a millennial. You're, you're born in 1990. I hope that's not uh, like doxing no. or anything. Born no, in 91 no, no. here. So we can get some of the same references. I, I made my own get your case and, okay. uh, I, I told it to my wife because I'm like, I think this will be simple. And she's like, it's not simple. I don't, I don't get it. So maybe it is, maybe it isn't. But I wanted to, to lay it out for you. So, so Timmy goes to Toys R Us okay. and, he, and he buys an X-ray-o-matic. And it's like this toy that does X-rays. And it's the 90s, dude. So like they didn't okay. care. It's fine. <laughs> and, uh, and he buys a Wonder Ball. Do you remember Wonder Balls? It's, there's a no. jingle. I wonder, 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 wonder what's in a Wonder Ball. And they had oh. like Disney characters inside. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And then they're plastic and some kid ate the whole Wonder Ball and like choked on it. And so they had to make oh. candy inside and we we're all upset about that. Okay, okay. But so he, so little Timmy goes, he gets a Wonder Ball X-ray-o-matic. He X-rays the Wonder Ball and yeah. um, he sees that inside's a little Zeus figurine from, from the Hercules. Okay. Uh, yeah, 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 yeah. And uh, a live action one now, apparently. Oh, but they have ahead. to, they're doing everything. Everyone, <laughs> let's just everything, run it back. So, uh, so Timmy knows what's inside this Wonder Ball. He puts it in his Pokemon backpack, heads off to school. And uh, he he bets his friend Jake five dollars that he can guess what's in this unopened, uh, mm. even sealed packaged Wonder Ball. And right, Jake takes right. that bet all day, but unbeknownst to Timmy, Caleb, the school of klepto, he stole the X-rayed Wonder Ball out of Timmy's backpack. Uh. But however, Timmy's dad just so happened to sneak a Wonder Ball into a different pouch in Timmy's backpack uh, that morning because he loves his yeah. son. He wants him to have a yeah, Wonder yeah. Ball. He knows he loves him. <laughs> so Timmy reaches in his backpack and grabs his dad's Wonder Ball instead of the X-ray ball. And it just so yeah. happens that inside there, there's also a Zeus. Yep. So he's got a true belief. He wins the $5, but he didn't really have knowledge of what's in the Wonder Ball. Right. So it's still yeah, a wonder right. to him. Exactly. Exactly. Okay. Yeah. All right. I, I now, love- now you just need to throw like... Um, Sock and Botham's in there somehow, and you know you. <laughs> That's great, uh, Edmund Edmund Gettier, uh, For those who, who don't know, he he was a he's a philosopher, 
I, I don't know. Did he pass away? Is he still alive? I actually don't know the answer. To yeah, I don't know either. Because everyone just get here. You know, it, it's it's what he did. No one really talks much <laughs> more about him. But he wrote this like three-page paper that just changed the whole world of epistemology. And uh, I, apparently he was just sitting in his desk and he had like the publisher parish mentality and just said, I'll publish this and rocked everyone's world, which is crazy. Right. I love and that. According, according to this, he is still alive. Okay. All Good. right. I'm glad you're alive. Yeah. You're, you're awesome. Yeah. You, you changed history. You're awesome. It's insane. So uh, go, getting back to like justification and warrant, stuff like that. Can you, can you tell us the distinction between internalism and externalism? Oh, right. So you can have, um, you can be like an internalist about justification and externalist about warrant. You know, you, you, you can be, you can uh, affirm different uh, mm. views with respect to these different categories because they're categories about different things. Right? Yeah. You can mix so, and match. Exactly. Uh, and uh, so internalism, the sort of most popular version of internalism, uh, or at least the traditional form of internalism, I'll say that, yeah. is what's called access internalism. And the idea is that in order to have a justified belief, you need to have access um, to uh, the properties which confer justification or warrant. You know, to put it kind of less precise but more understandable to some people, yeah. um, you need to basically have access to reasons or arguments as uh, it pertains to um, why you're, you know, the, the 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 properties which make this belief justified or warranted so yeah. um yeah and externalism basically is just the denial of this um it says no you don't you don't always have to have access to these properties which confer the justification or the warrant yeah and so um uh, you know it, it might be the case that there's something external to your access that playing a significant role and why your belief is justified or warranted so, for example, take I uh, just got a, a dog the other day, and uh, uh, she's she, she's a good dog, right? Yeah, she, she's a good girl. And uh, whenever I come home, she gets really excited, and she like, oh hey, it's you again, right? And yeah, wags the tail. If someone else came in the door, because this happened, she was like, uh, nope, and she yeah. ran off. <laughs> hey, she was yeah. like, I I don't want any part of this. So it seems like the dog knows stuff, right? Yeah. If if I say treat you know can't, can't speak it too loud um <laughs> it seems like that uh my dog knows something good is coming yeah <laughs> right? yeah food 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 um and so it seems like animals know stuff if you take a lot of cognitive science seriously i think you're going to come to the conclusion that infants know things right but they yeah. don't have access to arguments mm. uh they don't have access um to uh, you know, it's not like they're forming probabilistic calculations, yeah, right, uh, or anything like that. And yet, they still seem to know stuff. So could, that's, could that's say, kind of the idea. Could you say they don't know why they know it? Would that be right? Right. Okay. Right. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think that's clear that, that they don't have these sorts of meta-level beliefs, or yeah. like they don't have these sorts of beliefs about their beliefs. Right. Right. So. Right. I love that that dog recognizing you. That's huge, man. I, I guess I haven't thought of that. But, you know, you think of like classical conditioning and you can say the dog doesn't really know stuff. He just he's heard the bell. And so he salivates and stuff. But the I, I don't know that uh, I think this might be a different case seeing your face versus my face. 
and freaking mm, out when mm. he sees you know me uh, <laughs> or she sense, freaks or, out yeah, yeah, yeah i love that that's, that's really great i gotta think about that some more yeah so a lot of epistemologists think that um there's something called animal knowledge yeah and humans possess animal knowledge too right um we're, we're animals so uh for example going back to the first question you asked me you know that, that relates to what i eat for breakfast today, yeah right i mean so yeah. may, maybe my uh maybe certain memories um Maybe, uh, you know, like what's in front of me, my perception, right? Maybe the beliefs that are derived from these sorts of faculties. Um, I don't have access to arguments. I don't, uh, maybe I don't even have access to whether or not my faculties are functioning properly, you know? Yeah. Um, but nonetheless, it seems like I, I, I know. And so uh, philosophers, like I said, uh, it's popular to call this sort of animal knowledge. Yeah. While the uh, stuff you know by way of reflection and arguments is sometimes called reflective knowledge. So, yeah. for example, Ernest Sosa made these uh, this category, these two categories, um, quite well known. And so, uh, yeah, yeah. So epistemology—it's not just like a Christian thing. <laughs> it's not like a theist thing where it's just like Christians are wanting to like. Uh, baptize animals and infants with beliefs in order to help them argue for their own rational beliefs about God or something like yeah, that. Yeah. Right. Right. That's great. Okay. So moving on, um, how about fallibilism? So, so, um, I'm, I'm a theology student and a lot of times we talk about certainty and I'm certain that mm. God exists and it would be really wrong to believe that. And you go over to the philosophers and they're like, no, dude, I'm a fallibilist because the opposite <laughs> is crazy. Yes. Can you, can you explain yeah, that? Part? Yeah. So there's, there's, you can mean fallibilism and infallibilism about lots of things. Um, so you might be a infallibilist about warrant. That's just to say that you think that if someone does have a warrant, then that it, it follows that they for sure have a true belief. They can't yeah. have a false one if they possess warrant. or you can be a, a, a fallibilist about warrant and you could think that you can have warranted false belief for right? hmm. You could also apply this concept to um, knowledge in general that yeah. in order to know anything, you have to have an infallible belief. So I actually have a friend uh, who does philosophy who affirms this. Uh, mm. He's like this, you know, hardcore Cartesian type where, yeah. uh, you know, Everybody he thinks does. that uh, literally in order to know P, it has to be such that you can't be wrong about P. Yeah. Um, that's a by far a minority view just for the viewers who aren't aware of the uh, current state of the field. And then um, there's a, a little bit more of a, of a group not massive group, uh, but a little bit more of a group who um, thinks that uh, not all our beliefs have to be infallible, but at least the foundations of our beliefs. The, the, um, uh, so uh, I won't get too ahead of, much ahead of us because I know I think you want to talk about this sort of topic. But yeah. um, the idea is that uh, the beliefs, maybe there are beliefs that the rest of our beliefs kind of rest upon and, and, and sort of depend on for their own justification. And so these foundational beliefs need to be infallible. Um, and then, of course, there are others who just think that um, that uh, that's not required, but we still do have some beliefs that are infallible, right? So by infallibleist, yeah. you can mean lots of, you know, different things. Yeah. But, uh, yeah, no, I, I, I'm, I'm ex- a kind of a skeptic when it comes to infallible beliefs. I, I don't think humans do possess any. So, um uh, and yeah, I do think we have knowledge. So obviously I'm not, yeah, <laughs> I'm yeah. not a, a skeptic, but uh, yeah. So, you know, Descartes famous 
people demon scenario, right? Where mm-hmm. uh, you imagine, you know, a demon deceiving you, right? Or ma- imagine being a brain in the bat, like in the matrix. Yeah. Um, another movie coming out in the near future. Yep. Uh, and uh, it just seems to me like, like when I think, uh, maybe you think that you for sure, you know, for certain, you can't be wrong about it. That one plus one is two. Mm. Why do you think that? Like, I think largely you think that because uh, obviously some infallibles will disagree with me, but I think what's largely doing the work here is that we have a particular experience or phenomenology. Mm-hmm. There's a particular experience that we have when we think about one and one, there's just no other way. Like when we conceptually analyze it, we think, no, it has to be two, right? Or maybe you, you take this with other mathematical or lo- logical facts, right? Yeah. But it's like, why can't we be hardwired in such a way where it seems like it can't be any other way? It seems like we're seeing the truth, so to speak. But actually, this is this is all part of the, the act from the demon or from the AI that are putting us in the bats, <laughs> yeah. you know? Yeah. Uh, so, so yeah. So, th- th- that's that's where, where, where that is. A lot, lot of... Um, uh, philosophers, I think, would, would agree with that, um, that uh, denying infallibleism in, in, in any sense, really. But yeah, does that answer the question? Yeah, it does. It does. And it's helpful. Um, there's, I have a, a wide audience. I got apologists and theologians and philosophers, which is awesome. I love you guys. But some people would say, you know, can, are, do you, are you absolutely certain about this? And it's mm-hmm. like, well, dude, some people just don't think that's the case. And they're really smart people. Right, and right, right. They'll eat your lunch. So you're, <laughs> you're like be aware that this is a thing and and learn up on that and maybe you'll change your mind. Maybe you still are a, a infallibilist, but at least you'll be more uh, aware of what's going on and who you're running right. into. Right, right. So I wanted to follow up just two more uh, definitional things. I n- I know this might be maybe a more can I, uh, Yeah, please jump in. Yeah, yeah. So there there's a group of apologists that uh, we'll kind of go around and we'll, we'll oftentimes say, well, are, are, are you certain about that? You know, just kind I, of I know these folks. Well, yeah, yes, yes. And uh, I, I think the, the, there's nothing self-defeating and saying, um, actually, no, I don't have certainty with respect to my fallibilism. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I, I'm not sure where the self-defeat would be. And um, of course, if you say, well, if you know it to be true, um, then uh, that's uh, then that's self defeating, but that would only be self defeating, of course, if your own con- um, uh, criteria for knowledge included the belief be infallible. And so, right. oftentimes in this crowd, it seems like those things kind of get mixed up a little bit. So I just thought I'd yeah, throw that's that out great. there. That's for, great. Uh, that's that's the crowd I run in. So I uh, yes, yes. I'm, I'm very self conscious to uh, educate the crowd. You know and. Yes. Uh, I used to run in that crowd. I did. I I know you did. I want to bring that up later. (laughs) Yeah. So, uh, so moving on here, two more definitional things. Truth, uh, truth might be maybe more of a a metaphysical uh, concept, but but you guys got to deal with truth. So, what's truth? For our purposes, just say it corresponds with reality. You know, corresponds with how the universe actually is, how reality actually is. Awesome. And then uh, two more or last thing here, I want to talk defeaters. Um, so we got we got undercutting defeaters, we got rebutting Sorry, defeaters, right. undefeated defeaters. Can you can you help us with those three concepts? Yeah, yeah. So uh, um, uh, think about like a defeater as something that decreases your level of warrant. 
mm. such that it uh, might make it such that you no longer know that P. <laughs> yeah. And there are different ways to formulate the feeders, um, different ways to formulate these objections or arguments which will drain away the warrant, right? I think almost like a leech. <laughs> the defeater like kind that. of latches onto the belief and starts to suck out the warrant. Sucks out that special sauce. <laughs> that's right. That's right. Yeah. They're, they're hungry spaghetti monsters, you know? They're, they're, they're <laughs> yeah. Um yeah, so uh, you know, there, there it might be such that um, you have a, a rebutting defeater. So a rebutting defeater would be say that uh, you're, you, I say P, and you can show me why P is wrong, why P is false, like directly, right? Hmm. Um, and then you 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 could. There's another way to defeat my belief that P though, rather than this direct approach. You can do what you can do is you can undercut the justification. So say I say P and I say P because X, Y, Z. What you can do is you can cast doubt on X, Y, uh, Z. And uh, this sort of undercuts. It doesn't directly show that P is false, right? But what it does is that source of justification for thinking that P is gone. And so... uh, uh, that's and then uh, what was the third category? Uh, undefeated defeaters. But real quick, I wanted to to toss in maybe some more uh, millennial uh, callbacks. There's a there's this game on addictinggames.com called Tank Wars. Is that okay. does that ring any bells? It doesn't. It Dang doesn't. It. No, sorry, okay. sorry. So so Tank Wars. It's this little game, and you're shooting you're shooting uh, at, at another tank, and you okay. can blow up the ground that they're on. And so an undercutting okay. defeater would be you're blowing up for anyone who knows about tank wars. It's why I don't know mathematics because I just played tank wars on the computer all the time. <laughs> so it, you'd blow up the ground underneath and the tank would fall down below. And if you get them okay. fall all the way down to the bottom, bottom, I think he blows up. So that's undercutting defeater. A, uh, a, uh, the other de- defeater is a uh, rebutting and that's if you're blowing up the tank, the tank, right. Right. And that I actually blows that. it up. So boom, we're back. And uh, actually real, real quick actually too. So, Planninga, in his work, if, if anyone has, has read Alvin Planninga, he's the man. He changed up the game as well. Um, he talks about de jure or de jure objections and de facto objections. Is Oh, it, the treat. Sorry. It just hey, finally. Hey. Nope, nope, nope. <laughs> no Eevee. Uh, so, 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 so notice these... my dog's name's a Pokemon name, Eevee. So, oh, nice. You know, nice. Back to the 90s that's, recall. That's, yeah. yeah, that's an interesting uh, a pick there, too. Eevee is like the, the flower, uh, like they shoot leaves or something? No, no, no. Eevee is the, uh, it's like a fox-looking. Oh, Pokemon. nice. Okay. Yeah, or fox-ish. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So uh, is an under does undercutting defeater have to do with de jure, and then rebutting has to do with de facto? Mm. Yes, yes. I get where you're going with this. Uh, yes, yeah. That's, okay. That's, that's right. So that's just for free for anyone who can understand it. We're not going to go into that. <laughs> but then under uh, undefeated defeaters, how about that? Yes. So it's just when a defeater, so like you can defeat defeaters, right? So it's mm-hmm. like someone uh, throws this little, you know, bug that's coming to suck your defeat, throw, throws throws it on your your belief, but then also you, you throw one back and it like hits, hits the bug itself and starts sucking out the, 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 the other bug. Yeah. And so it's kind of like the defeat, the defeater, blocks the defeat right yeah. so maybe your belief was defeated uh but then this comes along and goes ah that's actually not the case you know self-destruct boom yes. and then you're, you're you you have your belief still there uh, in present form uh and there, there might be certain beliefs that 
uh, you have so much warrant for. They're just um, um, the, your credence level is so high. So I think that cre- your confidence level is often tied to the degree of warrant you have. So warrant okay. comes in degrees. And so you might have a, a um, uh, belief that uh, has such a high degree of warrant that this defeater comes, it tries to latch on, but it can and just falls off. Mm. And so like the belief sort of deflects yeah. the attempted defeater. And so uh, that's also an, uh, that's another term, right? Category. Defeater yeah, deflectors. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. When I first started reading uh, planning and I'd listen to uh, anything on YouTube by him and he'd do these like round tables and he's like, well, <laughs> I have a defeater deflector for that. And it's undefeated defeater. Like, okay, I, need to, I need to study more. Yeah. Okay. So, um, before we jump in, uh, you've already noticed. So, Doctor Doctor Minagri here, Tyler is a analytic uh, philosopher, and he does some analytic theology as well. So, he's going to say a lot of P's and S's, and that, so P is just it, it's a stand-in, it's a variable proposition. for proposition. Yeah. S right, is for right. subject. So, right. when you guys hear that, when he says, "I believe that P," he's saying, "I believe just a fill-in-the-blank proposition." Right. So, exactly. I, I'm just warning everyone because we're about to go in, and he's about <laughs> to go next level genius on everybody. Right, right. Yeah, I, I remember when I first got, uh, I was doing graduate school, and I was reading, uh, like, uh, S's belief that P is warranted if in an IFF, right? You know, that's yeah, the thing. Yeah, if, if, and only, yeah. if and only if. And yeah. I had no idea what the, the what if and only if, you know, like that, that idea. Yeah. And I was like, oh my gosh, I found an error. This person <laughs> added an extra F, right? Dude. So, I mean, there's, there's all times where, where people can get confused with analytic lingo. I when I first uh, first got into philosophy, theology, anything like that, I was starting with like John Piper, and in his footnote it said, <laughs> it said Ibid, and I was like, "What is this book he keeps referencing? I can't find Ibid anywhere." And I finally discovered it. Just for for those who don't know, it just means like it's like the quotes, the double quotes, like the same as above, and it's like Latin probably or something. And I felt so stupid because I spent like an hour trying to find this resource. It's okay, that he was it's okay. My, my in my undergrad. I remember going up to a guy and uh, instead of saying paradigm, I said uh, paradigm. Yeah. I was like, yeah, it seems like the paradigm of. Oh, man. They just laughed me at me so hard. I was oh, like, I, I love make that. that mistake again. So, yeah, yeah it's just, actually- part of, just part of academics. So I'm having uh you you had James Anderson on on your podcast uh, yeah, further in Christendom yeah. and uh, I'm I'm having him on next week so I'm excited about that but he says and we say paradigm sounds really nice and then we say paradigmatic like we're dummies and James Anderson just listening to him he goes oh it's very paradigmatic and I'm like why haven't we said that paradigmatic <laughs> is so much better man but we go paradigmatic so that's another one for free let's jump into uh, proper functionalism here okay. So maybe we could start, uh, we already got there a little bit, but with uh, foundationalism versus coherentism. Yeah. Right, right. So, um, you know, when you, when you think about, okay, what justifies or what, what, what enables a belief to be warranted, right? And so maybe if I asked you, like, why do you believe that P, right? You're like, well, I believe that P because of R1. <laughs> and uh, reason, I was like, reason okay, one. reason yep. one, right? Yep. And I was like, well, hey, why do you believe R1? And you're like, R2, right? I should be confused with D2. And then I was like, hey, wait, wait, why do you believe R2? Right? The idea is eventually you would need to stop, mm-hmm. or at least some argue this, right? You, you, you would end up needing to have some sort of stopping point, like a foundation 
where it bottoms out, so to speak. Or some people argue that um, you actually don't have to bottom out. Um, it can, uh, you can sort of end up, uh, uh, your reasoning line can end up back at R1. So say you said R2, R3, R4, R5, R1, right? Yeah. And so this would be a coherentist. So the idea is that like beliefs are justified, not really by like looking at each individual belief atomistically, but like as a, as a whole, yeah. uh, in a web of beliefs, so to speak. And then there's infinitism, which is uh, the idea that potentially there would be an infinite <laughs> uh, number of, of reasons that so so in order for belief to be justified, there has to be this uh, potentially infinite line of reasoning that you can go to. And I know some infinitists say will say things like, um, "Just depends on the context," you know, in reference mm-hmm. to how far you need to go down the line. You know, no infinitist is going to say you actually. <laughs> okay. Uh, you, you you need a your belief isn't uh, justified or warranted unless you give me every single yeah, <laughs> infinite right. answer right now. Right. That's that's. So um, yeah, so that, that's kind of the the idea. This this um, these three options are known as you know Agrippa's trilemma. Yeah, and uh, um, probably it's safe to say that the vast majority of analytic epistemologists uh, are foundationalists. So they they go with the it needs to stop at some point, right? Some sort of bedrock of knowledge. And uh, but then the question is, what makes a belief foundational? Right. So there's a difference between basic beliefs mm-hmm. and based beliefs. And so basic beliefs would be like this foundation. Based beliefs would be the beliefs based on this, um, these basic beliefs. And so um, I'm a proper functionalist after Planega. And um, there's other proper functionalists. We're Christians, Andrew Moon, Kenny Boyce, um, Eric Baldwin. Uh, then there's also naturalists, atheists, who are proper functionalists as well. Mm. Um Peter Graham, um, Milliken, uh, 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 Sosa seems to be something at least close to a proper functionalist. Okay. So um, it's not just like a Christian theory, so to speak, but it's a it's a well respected theory that oftentimes is is, is featured in um, you know an introduction book to epistemology, right? Right. And uh, basically, the idea is that a belief is basic if it's if the design plan of your faculties sort of doesn't designate uh, arguments in order for the belief to be justified or warranted. And yeah. so go back to the dog example, right? So earlier my dog started briefly barking during the podcast. Mm. Uh, and I looked at her, I was like, no, she stopped. Right. Yeah. Uh, and so she knew something, it seems like so- something, you know, triggered within her faculties and, and, you know, she, she, she came to know a proposition. And so, um, uh, in this case, like, how does she know? Well, she knows because she has faculties that, um, you know, it's kind of like a computer. Her brain is kind of like a computer. Our brains are even more so like computers. And um, so, this is called a computational model of of the brain in cognitive science. Uh, I'm not saying our brains are computers on my own personal view, but I do have a lot of. You just triggered me. John Searle in my head in the Chinese room where he went to, so I'm, I'm Yeah, I, I do have sympathy with uh, the idea that at least they're very much something like a computer. Yeah. Um, and so 
uh, computers have design plans, mm -hmm. right? They have programming, so to speak. And so um, for, in this case, um, you know, I'm, I'm programmed to produce the belief that, hey, I'm talking to you, you know, mm -hmm. whenever I have a certain experience, namely, you know, I'm seeing you on a computer and I'm talking with you and so forth, yeah. or uh, the dog, right? Whenever I, I um, come home, right? She has a particular experience of me and it forms the belief that, you know, whatever belief she has, some sort of belief. I'm not yeah, sure how, how, how primitive it is, but right. you know, it's something. And so uh, this is the result, not of arguments, but rather of her faculties just functioning properly and being a good design plan, being a good program that yeah. it, it gets to a uh, true belief a lot. Uh, and so that, that's kind of the idea is that a belief is warranted if it's produced from properly functioning cognitive faculties that are successfully aimed at truth. Yeah. I love that. So, and, and um, we talked about foundationalism and planning a kind of just run ship on like extreme, uh, hardcore, you know, classical foundationalism mm -hmm. in his warrant series. So um, just to clarify, so you're, you're a moderate foundationalist. Is, right, that, right. is that fair to say? So right. there's, there's more beliefs in, in the classical foundationalism. There's like a couple beliefs that you can believe mm -hmm. as foundational. That you can take as foundational and yeah. then you build everything off and planning a, kind of opened up the grid and said, there's a lot more in that mm -hmm. properly basic. So you're moderate, you're a moderate foundationalist. Is that? Yeah. You right? don't find too many classical foundationalists or around uh, much more. There are some very respectable epistemologists who are great minds um, yeah. who are classical foundationalists. Usually they, for some reason, they tend to be uh, theists or Christians specifically. And mm. so like, if you look at the Phil Papers survey, it kind of like outlines, yeah. you know, different philosophers that on average, what philosophers believe. And um, theists or Christian philosophers are more inclined um, on average to believe in internalism than atheists or naturalistic philosophers. So, okay. Um, uh, still majority of philosophers are externalists or sympathetic with externalism. But um yeah, so the the, the uh, for example, here's some shameless self-advertising. Do it. Uh, and this Five Views book right yeah. here. There we go. <laughs> there we go. There we go. Um, uh, there's a uh, my co-editor John DePoe contributes a section, and he defends classical foundationalism really well. I think it's the most interesting uh, laid-out defense. Uh, I really praise him for for his his work there. Um, um, but uh, basically, the idea for him is that. A belief is basic, properly basic, if and only if like the belief's not correctable, right? Like you can't yeah. be wrong about about that belief, and so, um, yeah, that that there there's some trouble with that. Um, so, planning guys, you mentioned, kind of points out, well, that doesn't seem to be <laughs> a, a, yeah. a, an incorrigible belief, right? Yeah. Um, so you have to have an argument. So what's the argument, right? So John DePoe tries to lay out an argument, but if you don't find it, it's a good argument, right? You're going to go back to, again, what justifies this sort of belief. Um, and you might also think that if there aren't good arguments for belief in other minds or if dogs and animals or uh, infants don't have arguments, then would they really know? And a lot of philosophers want to try to say that animals and infants know. And so you'd throw out animal knowledge, which is something that a lot of philosophers won't want to do. And so yeah. you have, you have other sorts of problems with classical foundationalism. Um, but so, yeah, so the idea is I, I would differentiate myself with them by opening up the foundations, so to speak. Okay. 
Oh, that's great. So um, how about, so planning us uh, and the whole, the whole reformed epistemology crew pretty heavily influenced by Thomas Reed. And mm-hmm. um, I'm wondering how, how much does reliabilism play in, mm-hmm. uh, in, in Planigle's model, in your model, in, right, in, right. and maybe what is reliabilism? Yeah. So depending on who you ask, yeah. right. uh, proper functionalism is either a subset of reliabilism or maybe a close cousin. Okay. And so um, there are different versions of reliabilism. The most, I think, kind of uh, well-known or traditional version is called process reliabilism. Mm-hmm. And the idea basically is that as long as there's a process that reliably gets you to truth, so think about a car taking you to work, you know, is it reliable and getting you to work? It might break down sometimes, right? But yeah. generally you can count on it, right? And so uh, the idea is that if you have a reliable process that's responsible for the belief that you have, then that belief is justified or warranted, depending on what you're talking about. Yeah. Um, and so uh, they, they have sort of a less, uh, their claim is um, weaker, I think, than what the proper functionalist wants, because the proper functionalist okay. is going to say, yeah, the faculty needs to, to get the truth uh, in a reliable manner, right? But you need something stronger. It's not enough to have pure reliability or mere reliability. Yeah. You need for that process to also have a design plan mm. for a way it should function and not function. And it needs to be working in accordance with its programming. Yeah. Yeah, that's great. Okay, that, that's really helpful. So just once more, proper functionalism summed up. There's a, a couple conditions of it, right? So uh, cognitive in, environment, right? They have to have the right environment. Your, yeah. your faculties have to be designed for the environment in which they're operating. Faculties uh, have to be aimed at truth. Uh, they, it has to be a, a good design plan of your faculties. Okay. So it has to be able to produce these beliefs in this proper environment. And they have to be actually functioning properly according right. to that design plan. Right. I love yeah. it. Yeah. And so, so maybe we're not meant to be in fun houses yeah. when we we're, we're forming beliefs, right? And yeah. Um, maybe, uh, you know, there are different scenarios where you could think about having a reliable process that still has too much luck in the situation to where you're going to want to say, no, that this, that's not knowledge. And so that should lead us to think about the proper function condition being so. And um, yeah, so yeah, th- th- those are some general motivations for, for the theory. Okay. And so then um, we, I don't know if we have touched it yet. We, we, we've been around it, but evidentialism in, yeah. in epistemology, mm-hmm. can you, can you lay that out for us and how proper function is, is so, different? So if you take an evidentialist thesis, the idea is that, a belief is uh, not justified unless you have access to evidence, mm-hmm. right? Or belief is not warranted unless you have access to evidence. Um, there are very weak ways to construe evidence that I'm comfortable with endorsing okay. an evidentialist thesis. Um, so, like, if you say that it's just like an experience, <laughs> right? Um, as long as, you know, you, you, you have access to this experience, like, it's justified, um, there, the, obviously the classical foundationalist isn't, uh, going to be okay with that. They're going to want something stronger, right? They're going to yeah. want arguments, um, uh, usually in the shape of, um, probability. Uh, but, uh, yeah, so, um, the, uh, you can be reformed epistemology. So I take reformed epistemology to be a minimal thesis again, um, Basically, just the thesis that religious belief can be properly basic, mm. right? can be justified or warranted apart from argumentation. Yeah. 
And so there's, um, for example, one internalist view of justification that says a subject is justified um, in her belief uh, as long as it seems to her that P and she has no reasons for thinking that uh, P is false. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, if I'm, I'm looking, I've formed the belief that the computer is in front of me, right. It seems to me that the computer's in front of me and I have no defeater. It's not like I took a, remember taking a pill that makes me hallucinate about computers. Right. <laughs> right. Um, and so, so the idea is that um, my belief would be justified. Well, that's evidence. Right. And so, but nonetheless, I'm not basing my belief on arguments. Right. Yeah. And so, um, so you can be an evidentialist and a reformed epistemologist. In fact, once again, shameless self-promotion here, <laughs> uh, Logan Gage and Blake McAllister, mm-hmm. uh, they argue for a, uh, this sort of view that I'm talking about. It's called phenomenal conservatism. And they also uh, endorse reformed epistemology in the book as well. So they're, they're, they're compatible. Uh, oftentimes it's seen as they're not because historically um, uh, evidentialism oftentimes was construed in such a way like in a, a, a more in a classical foundationals friendly manner. Yeah. Um, so. Yeah. So I'll, I'll also join in and, and plug in this book. So this book's great for those who, who aren't aware. It's a, uh, it's a five views book. And so di- five different people laying out different takes on religious epistemology and the other four just go at them. And, yeah. uh, and you guys are actually very cordial with each other, which is, which is, <laughs> which is fun. It's not always as fun as if you would go for the regular <laughs> But uh, so it's a great book to to get into this because you're getting to see someone who's, you know, great in their field saying, here's what I believe. And then other colleagues saying, yeah, but have you considered this? And then what's actually really great about this one, too, which some books don't do, they give a rejoinder to the, the one who wrote the initial essay. So they get to respond to critics. And sometimes you don't get that. And it's like, man, I really want to know what he would say back to him. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So go Thanks. buy that book. I, so so. What are your thoughts? Who won the debate now? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I have some, some prior probabilities and stuff like that going on. Um, so again, I, I, this might be, uh, I think I added this last minute, but uh, you're familiar with like Chisholm's uh, particularist Methodism mm. yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. dichotomy. Does, does that, is that at play in proper functionalism at all? For, for, for the listeners here, there's like, if you're a particularist, you want to start with like, Hey, we have knowledge. So mm-hmm. since right, we have right. knowledge, kind of like Kant, right? And Kant says like, yeah. well, obviously we have knowledge. So what must be true in order for us to have knowledge? And then right. there's like the Methodists who are like, well, I don't actually know if we have knowledge until we kind of analyze right. this method. Can we have knowledge? Right. right. And, so and so I so think, you, yeah, go ahead. So, so the proper functionalists will look to this and say, um, oh, here, here we, we know we have knowledge. We know that the dog has knowledge. We know yeah. that infants have knowledge. So now we need to come up with a theory that sort of accounts for yeah. um, for how this can be. Um, and the, the Methodist is going to say, oh, no, 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 no. You know, we're, if uh, it turns out that, um, uh, that the theory uh, entails that we don't have knowledge, then knowledge be damned. Yeah. And, and that, that's, that's kind of the, the approach. And so, uh, yeah, I, I wouldn't consider myself a Methodist in either the religious or the epistemic uh, manner. Mm. That's great. That's great. Yeah. That's, that's what I was thinking, but I wanted to confirm that. That's great. Yeah. Okay. So this, this was interesting and maybe I just had a fuzzy conception of it, but I think a lot of people will, will conflate reformed epistemology with proper functionalism. And so mm. 
you can you right. can be a proper functionist, like you said, and be a reformed epistemologist. So, because reformed epistemology just means you don't have to have right, like, right. arguments for belief in in religious beliefs. Right, right. Okay. Yeah. So, so you you can be. I mean, I take it that four of the authors in here are reformed epistemologists of some sort. Yeah. And not everyone's a proper functionalist. Yeah. And so, uh, yeah, there. I think and more shit, shameless self promotion in this book <laughs> yeah. here. Um, I go through a lot of contemporary accounts in the first chapter of justification or warrant and basically argue, hey, all of them, yeah, <laughs> uh, it, or, or almost all of them are are consistent with the pieces of reformed epistemology. Yeah. And and uh, hold that book up again. That's a re- religious epistemology. And that's a great book. It's a it's a Cambridge element book. So it's it's like an introduction. But what's great about those is he's not just introducing religious epistemology uh, simpliciter for, for those who don't know, that's a great word. Uh, not just, just generally, but he, he gives an introduction and then argues for a specific point. And I was right. surprised how much you were, you were able to pack in there. That was awesome. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah. Yeah. They're pretty much the element series. At least what I was told was yeah. Survey the literature and then advance it in some way. And you can argue for your particular position. So I was going to be like, all right, fine. This will be a, uh, uh, attempt to brainwash people into, you know, proper Amen. functionalism and reformed epistemology. So. That's great. <laughs> so, uh, so here's a question. So, um, planning, I kind of started, I think started this journey with his book, uh, God and other minds. Right, and, right. and he says, you know, just like we're, maybe there's not great arguments for other minds, but you know, we just kind of know that like, it, it makes sense for me to think that you have another mind. I think that's probably fine. Like we need All to right, have that. Right. And just as I can, uh, by analogy, just as I can know that you have a mind, I can also know that God has a mind, or that God is a mind, or that God exists. Right, right, right. I, right. I'm wondering. There's. I love the the problems in philosophy. I'm wondering. Does does reformed epistemology and proper functionalism does it like erase all the classical problems in philosophy, like external world, mm. brain in a vat, right, God, right. Uh, idealism? You know, the Earth was just made 15 seconds ago with appearance of age and fake. Can can does it just erode all of those? Yeah, it does. Um, warrant and proper function, basically, that's one of the, there's kind of like an indirect argument for proper functionalism that Plantinga makes. <laughs> and Warton proper function, his 1993 Oxford volume, where he basically goes through these traditional problems, problem of induction, you know, problem of other minds, memory, issues with memory um, in the past. And he, he basically says, here, look, this is how proper functionalism solves all of this. Mm. So, yeah, I, I, I think that's uh, one of the benefits to yeah. the model. That's great. So that, that would be an argument for proper functionalism. Right. Hey, you don't get all these crazy problems that, that all the other <laughs> exactly. guys are stuck with. Look yeah. at classical foundationalism compared, you know, no, all yeah. these troubles with skepticism, but proper functionalism, no problem. <laughs> so uh, I want to move on to the census divinitatis, divinitatis. Right. Um, and that's from taken, uh, the, the phrase I think at least is taken from Calvin and its institutes, but uh, Plantinga right. says one. he calls it his AC model because he he sees it also in aquinas right, right. And so can can you lay out what what is the the census divinitatis from a so the idea of? is that there's this faculty or faculties that uh humans have that are responsible for producing belief about god and his activities and so um uh this meshes well with a lot of what cognitive science of religion seems to support that humans are kind of hardwired where we have a particular disposition to naturally see um, divinity all around us. And so um, 
yeah, that, that's that, that's the basic idea. And so Plenigan goes, well, hey, if if those faculties are functioning properly and aimed at truth and so forth, then our belief about God, his activities could be warranted, even apart from argumentation. Yeah. And so um, in Plantinga's conception, I know there's a debate within Dutch Reformed theology, within right, right. all sorts of people, whether, because Plantinga kind of makes a sense of the divine, he makes it into a, a faculty, and it can right. be broken, it can be uh, like harmed, so that's not functioning properly to produce belief in God, right. or a sense of divine. Whereas, you know, other people, uh, Scott Oliphant in, in the Baiting uh, Christian Religious Epistemology book, right. he says, no, it, the census divinitatis just gives you knowledge. It's not a faculty. Mm-hmm. Like it uh, is knowledge, or he says it, something like that. Yeah. yeah, it's like implanted knowledge, or yeah, you can argue a bunch of different ways. Maybe as soon as you're able to cognize it all, you, you just have this right. immediate awareness. And so, um, planning his argument is that it's a, it's a faculty that doesn't work that, that can be broken. Right, right. Does, yeah. Uh, yeah. So the, the, that debate um, uh, doesn't concern me too much, as right. you might know, I'm a Catholic, right? Yep. So uh, uh, the debate about whether it's proper exegesis to Calvin. But to be honest, even when I was Reformed, um, I wasn't too concerned about it because it seems, and I, I mentioned this in the book as well, it seems broadly um, uh, at least Calvin inspired, even if you don't want to say it's exactly sure. his thought, right? Uh, that it still seems proper to say it's Calvinistic or reformed, you know, more generally speaking. Um, and so if you're wanting to be reformed and you're just like waking up in the morning going, ah, oh, reformed, right? And I just want to <laughs> believe reformed stuff. It seems like there's still enough there, uh, that, uh, you, you should be comfortable with. But, uh, I, I, I prefer, um, Plantinga's version, as I think it's much more plausible. And mm. so, um, you know, I, I think uh, this is a question I asked uh, Scott and the volume, you know, what do we do with, uh, you know, uh, embryos, prenatal humans, right? Fetuses, what, what do we do with them, the persons? Um, do they know that God exists? Right? Is it something that every person's have? Or what about people who are severely mentally challenged, mm-hmm. um, who have certain severe handicaps, cognitive handicaps? Are we going to say that you know they know God? And so if it's just something that like belongs to every person by you know because qua they're a human person made yeah. in God's image or something mm-hmm. like that, then I think you're going to get some implausible sort of consequences relating to this. If you view it more like a faculty then you can say, oh, no, the prenatal human hasn't developed those sorts of faculties. Yeah, it needs to mature, right? Or the, infant yeah. need, the infant's faculty needs to mature or, uh, you know, um, the severely mentally challenged person, their faculties have been so significantly damaged that their thirst isn't working rightly, you know? So I think that that uh, there's some implausibility maybe yeah. in, in the way that um, some presuppositionalist covenantal uh, uh, epistemologists kind of understand Calvin there. So yeah. even if that is the correct interpretation of Calvin, right? Who am I to, to, <laughs> to, to figure that out? But planning uh, goes to me seems there's some benefits to going with his account. Yeah, yeah, and and just as an aside, like you're you're gonna have to make some some extra moves, everyone, I think. But uh, you know, if you say yeah, the pre uh, 
it has to do with culpability for, for knowledge because everyone wants mm-hmm. to go to Romans mm-hmm. one because that's where Calvin's going. So, right. you know, if their cognitive faculties are, are broken, then perhaps God's not going to hold them as culpable because right. it doesn't seem right. right. And then for someone else, they'd say, well, you know, God implants the knowledge, right? It's maybe more of a, like an Augustinian divine illumination. And so that can, mm-hmm. that can take us off into, into theology some more and, and what we think and where we're right, getting our right. sources from. But um, just wanted to, to broach that topic because you've done some interesting work in the SD, the census divinitatis mm. that I want to get to. Um, do, do you got time to keep going here? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, okay my, cool. my family's so, trapped in America right now for the past six and a half months. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, so um, an, another another just quick one. Is Reformed epistemology fideism? Mm. So I, 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 I guess it depends on how you define it, right? Yeah. So if you think it just means like... Um, uh, irrational yeah. faith, right? Like the, that it's just a, an apologetic really for the permissibility to have a rational faith. Then obviously yeah. I, I would take issue with it and say, no, that's, yeah. that's not at all what, yeah. what it is. Now, if you said that, well, I'm defying uh, fideism by way of saying that um, you can believe something apart from argument, yeah. right? Or maybe you want to call it quasi, right? Put, put quasi fideism. Um, I'm more I'm more comfortable in calling it like some maybe something like that. But generally, when I think of it, that topic, I think of like Kierkegaard's like a leap from the absurd, you know, or into right. the absurd, whatever it is. Yeah. Uh, and uh, yeah, so it seems to me it's almost like believing something that you think it's probably not the case, or you think is irrational, but you're just go- going to do anyway, right? And so, at least as an analytic who doesn't do much work in that area. Um, that's kind of my conception of it. And so I would want to say, no, it's not, it's not, it's not uh, uh fideism in that sense. Yeah. So if you guys didn't catch it, um, Tyler is, he's an analytic philosopher, like we said. So for him to bring up Kierkegaard is like, uh, it's like a, a shameful <laughs> like name. If, if you were to call it, that's very Kierkegaardian of you. It's, Cause he's a, he's a continental theologian philosopher type. Right, type right, cat. Right. Yeah. So that was a, uh, just, just know that for folks at home. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, painful. Yeah, Tyler, I wanted to get into to your own personal journey real quick, and then yeah. uh, get into your the, what you've added to the field. Okay. okay. So how do you how do you get involved in philosophy? Yeah. So um, you know, from eternity past, God predestined. No. Amen. Amen. Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. So uh, I was a senior in high school, became an agnostic for a short period of time. Long story short, had a religious experience, led me to faith, a very sincere faith, started street evangelizing like a couple months later, um, really went full throttle into, into theology and apologetics and ended up at like a really liberal Baptist university. And after I graduated, it was my senior year, graduated and um, basically had to do more apologetics. You know, like my uh, intro to the New Testament was like intro to Jesus seminar. Oh, nice. <laughs> or like the, that was, that was the average New Testament class was intro to Jesus seminar. And like my Old Testament class was like intro to um, uh, documentary hypothesis theory and liberation yeah. theology of the Old Testament. Great. And, yeah. And so I was basically like forced to get more involved in apologetics. And, hmm. and so I kind of just had a knack for it. And I ended up uh, having like a year it literally was basically almost exactly a year 
of great doubts where I bought into a bad epistemology. And I'm sure some of your um, viewers might be offended by this, but I bought into a bad epistemology that in order to know something, I had to be certain mm-hmm. of it. And uh, that just like messed me up big time because I was like, ah, I'm decent. Like I'm, I-, I know the arguments better than the average person off the street, yeah. but like, come on, I'm an undergrad student, right? Uh, some professor at some prestigious university is an atheist who's been doing this for 40 years, publishing in peer-reviewed journals is probably going to destroy me. Yeah. Um, and so I was like, oh my gosh. And then I'll just be, I'll be shown to be irrational and I'll be shown that I don't know that God exists. And this just basically was like bugged the heck out of me. Um, and so I finally ended up reading uh, Warranted Christian Belief and was like, oh man, I can actually just trust my intuitions. I can just like basically know one what appears to me to be the case. And as long as I don't have the defeater yeah. for the belief, then then I'm good to go. And that was like so freeing that I was just like, I'm going to spend the rest of my philosophical career defending, you know, <laughs> planning as epistemology. And yeah. so there's a lot of um, uh, existential value, I think, in this sort of approach. Yeah. Not that I don't think there are good arguments. I do. And I have published sure. a couple, but um, the ideas just that are not necessary and, you know, grandma can know. Yeah. Amen, dude. I love that. That's, so. I, I don't know. If, did planning us say that? Cause I I've, I've given that, that, uh, planning is like, he's, he's back in the grand, the, my, my grandmother. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I know the, the Lydia McGrew has a paper who, who I think the paper is entitled something like why grandma doesn't know or you know, oh, something to that effect. Okay. Uh, and so, yeah, no, I remember I got into a debate. It might've been with Tim McGrew. I think it was, uh, do you know who Paul Monado is? Yeah. 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 So me and Paul Monado were like, I think debating Tim, if I'm not mistaken about, um, whether the average person uh, will basically decide an experience or will decide basically, yeah. they will call it this, but a seeming, you know, yeah. for uh, their belief or not. And so we asked our moms and like, I don't know, our close relatives who don't do philosophy whatsoever. Yeah. And um, uh, they all favored our, you know, like, oh, just, you know, just had, had this experience or it just seems to me, you know, there's basically yeah. plenty of sounding sort of. Yeah. And uh, of course, t- Tim was like, no, no, no. You asked the questions unfairly, you know, and <laughs> so we, had, we had good fun, good answer back and forth with respect uh, to whether the average person thinks they have, uh, whether the average person thinks it's necessary or not to have arguments and so forth. Yeah. So. That's great. So in the, in the background here, it, it gets cut off here for you guys, but it's like one of the most epic pictures of Alvin planning a, with his with his arms yes. crossed and he's making this this great face. I wish you guys could see it, but Google it. Um, so something that I found. So I'm I'm a presuppositionalist and I'm, I'm mm-hmm. more in line with uh, James Anderson. Who right, kind of, right, right. He takes a ton from from Planning and from Van Til. Yeah. And I found something helpful. I, I'm not sure if it was original to him that I found it uh, or someone else, but distinguishing between a cause for my faith and a reason for mm. my faith. And right, so. Right. So yeah, you know, I I believe the cause of my faith is the Holy Spirit, uh, you mm-hmm. know, illumined me and, and gave me this belief. And so, even if my reasons end up being bad reasons, or you know, right. um, I, I still have the cause. I I believe, and and it's a cause, but it's a reason that the Holy Spirit right. caused me to believe this, and and God predestined me before the foundation of the right. So you could one argument I think against is like, well, that's kind of ad hoc then. So you're just taking this position and then you're just having ad hoc arguments. If they don't work, you're just going to reformulate your arguments. Like, well, yeah, but that, that is my foundation, I guess. Right. So, Hmm. um, well, I think if you, you can like sort of 
parody the argument a bit, and it seems very plausible, right? So let's say that uh, you have warranted belief that other minds exist. Yeah. Vast majority of people in the world are going to grant you that. Yeah. Now, now let's and let's go ahead and say you believe that because your faculties have the particular programming that it has, and it it uh, and takes certain experience and sort of outputs the belief. You know. Um, now let's say someone asks you, and they say, "Hey, Parker, why do you believe that other minds exist?" And you start giving arguments and evidence and so forth. And let's say it, it, like you actually get pretty poor arguments, and yeah. Which, of course, wouldn't ever, but you oh, know, well, let's say yeah. in this, this pretend scenario, you, know, <laughs> right. you might. And uh, just because you can't articulate mm. good arguments or you know reasons, so to speak, like we can even say that the arguments are bad, nonetheless, you can still know that other yeah. minds exist, right? Yeah. Even if you're not even aware of why you know. Yeah. I like that a lot. I, I This might not be a, a good another pairing here, but... I think of like English language, so I can use the English language. But before I studied <laughs> Greek and Hebrew, I didn't know anything about syntax and semantics and, right. you know, all of that. And it's like you ask me to describe English to you and I can't even right. do it very well, but I can use English and I still use it according to the rules, roughly, at least. There's so many times when I'm like writing a paper or a book or something. And I'm using a word. And I'm like, you know what? Let me double check. Make yes. sure I actually know what that the, All the, the time, word man. means. Or, I mean, when I first got into philosophy, I was like, wait a minute. What's a proposition again? Like, I yeah. need to make sure I know for sure what a proposition is, you know? Yeah. And, and All so, the time. I mean, that, that's, yeah, I think that's quite normal. I think th- that's normal. And then for us, uh, going back to the millennial card, you know, Google has probably messed us up with that. Right, uh, right. Uh, cur- spell check, you know, like that. Yeah, right, right. Yeah. And like, you know. Uh, my wife's teaching my kids cursive right now, and I'm like, just teach them how to sign their names. They're not going to use it for the rest of their lives. <laughs> for real. Or, you know, it's just, oh man, it's, yeah, yeah. It's like when they told us uh, we are not going to have a calculator in our pocket yeah. all the time. Fail. Like psh, fake news. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so, um, so man, you just answered pretty much all my questions. I, I was going to ask how you specialize in epistemology, how you came to be a proper functionalist, but planning it kind of saved you from from this this dark period brought on probably right. by some some presuppositionalism right right some bad presuppositionalism at yeah. least and yeah and uh yeah so you can say that uh i mean i might still be a christian right um without encountering plenty of epistemology but in my from my human perspective i'm yeah. not sure if that existential crisis really would have ever ended or if yeah. i would constantly be in this flux this work about um you know, whether or not I know, or if one day I'll realize I don't know, or, you know, yeah. these sorts of things. So all those main worries that plague me, you know, day and night. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm, I'm, I, I give a, a lot of credit to, to Plantinga and his, his, his work. Thomas so Reed also, because Plantinga basically is a right. analytic contemporary version of Reed who then throws in the religion part. So, yeah, no, that's great. So, I know that some presuppositions out there are like, dude, that's not presuppositionalism. And because a lot of guys will say that to the evidentialists and they'll go, you know, you're an evidentialist, uh, apologist. And so what if the, the weight of the evidence goes the other way? And a lot of guys think it's, it's very noble to say, yeah, I tell my kids, you know, if you find evidence that, that disproves God, then follow it, you know, and, and some people get yeah, yeah, yeah. triggered by that. Right. right, right just right, acknowledging, right. like he said, it's bad presuppositionalism. Just everybody relax. It's okay. <laughs> We're going to keep going here. Uh, here's here's what I, w- I want to add. I want to talk about your addition to the conversation because you've yeah, yeah, advanced yeah. some stuff. You added some new some new cool stuff. Where'd you where'd you do your dissertation and, and 
who is what was it on? Who was it under? Yeah, so I did my PhD at the University of Glasgow. Uh, Victoria Harrison uh, was there at the time. She's a notable philosopher of religion, especially uh, in the UK and Asia. Um, and uh, she, I, I went there because I wanted to do some comparative work where I wanted to sort of explore whether or not various religious traditions could utilize Plantinga's epistemology, right? That's mm. kind of an objection that some people make. I call it the Pandora's box objection, yeah. where it's like, okay, well, if uh, Plantinga's right about his epistemology, right, it seems to open up Pandora's box because like everyone and their mother can use his epistemology to show that their religious belief or even non-religious belief, right, yeah. uh, could be warranted apart from argument and they can meet the proper function conditions and so forth. Um, and so I kind of go in and say, all right, no, that, that's not the case, actually. Um, in order to have proper function, you need to have a designer, according to Plantinga. Here are the reasons why he says this. You might think not, but here, let me go ahead and respond to these possible objections to further Plantinga's point. Um, you know, and you have faculties that aim at truth, not faculties that uh, are producing illusions or something like that, right? right? Or if, uh, an Islam. Eric Baldwin in our paper, and we also talked about it in our book, um, you know, God seems to have an interest in deception. He boasts about being the best deceiver, for example. Um, and in Surah 8, it seems like he even deceives Muhammad and his military, not for bad reasons, uh, but but for some greater good. And so we, we say, like, imagine, you know, that there's a general and he's going around shooting his own soldiers with a particular like nefarious uh, laser gun. Mm. So if the laser hits you, it produces a uh, false belief in you. So maybe he sets the gauge to like, uh, I don't know, um, reinforcements are coming. <laughs> and so it, upon being um, shot with the laser, they'll form this belief and be like emboldened and will fight more fiercely, mm. right? Uh, and so now let's go ahead and say that uh, you find out that your general did this. And that you remember that there's been an occasion or two or three where he's kind of boasted about how good he is with this deception gun. Yeah. And then you start to wonder, like, oh, my gosh, you know, has he used this on me a lot more than once? <laughs> <laughs> and uh, so, so maybe this can go into some, some, some issues with the truth-aimed part of Plantinga's uh, conditions. Um, but also... Uh, in the philosophical tradition, there's been a large, large part of the orthodox philosophical tradition in Islam. Um, uh, there's this idea that God kind of designs us to have doubts and mm. he designs us to overcome doubts by way of accessing arguments. And we don't have robust knowledge until we do that. Mm. There's even some Muslim traditions that say, uh, you know, if you don't do that, you're not a Muslim or others will say you're Muslim, but you're not a good one. Yeah. And so, uh, you know, the idea here is that this doesn't fit as well as like, say, the reform tradition does not requiring this. And so this a lot of this sort of comes from like the Quran's command to test it to see if it's true. And that sort yeah. of thing. They take it very seriously, that, okay. that command. And so uh, anyway, so even with something like Islam, uh, where you might think, well, it's so close to Judaism and Christianity. Nonetheless, there are still some issues uh, yeah. with Mormonism. Uh, Eric and I have a paper talking about this in Philosophic Christie, uh, where if you think the actual infinites aren't aren't metaphysically uh, possible, um, then and yet the sto a story that you tell about how we got our cognitive faculties depends on an actual infinite. Yeah. Right. Maybe actual infinite number of designers, like perhaps what you have, I think, plausibly so in Mormonism. Yeah. 
And so, uh, well, then that, that you're not going to be able to really make sense of the design claim. That That's case. great. So, so, so the the reason that there might be an in, uh, uh, infinite number of designers in, in Mormonism, again, another one where you think, well, that sounds so much like Christianity. Well, it's because Jesus became God and God the Father became God. And what who was once man shall become God. I forgot all the right. old, old yeah, English yeah, there. Yeah. But, but they keep going on back. And so there's not actually a creation account. There's not like this right. ex nihilo. It's not the God of classical theism right. who is the unmoved mover, <laughs> yeah. pure act right? Who is yeah. sustaining everything. It's kind of like this very theistic personalism on steroids Yeah, <laughs> where, where it's like, you too can become God. Right. right. And we can design like our own America people. Poster. Right. Yeah. <laughs> That's great. I going back to Islam. I really, I'm not trying to be offensive here. So please don't be offended everyone, but it sounds a little bit like Descartes evil demon of, mm. you know, like, like, He's he's intentionally deceiving stuff like that. So and you might lose your your warrant then under if if you have that belief. If you become convinced that that's what's going on, yeah, yeah. And so so we, we offer ways out for the the so that the faithful Muslim can escape it. Okay, maybe they appeal to uh, just the the, deg- the strength, the degree of warrant they have for Islam is just so powerful that this possibility is just really yeah. not going to defeat them. Or you know, maybe okay. they built such a relationship with the general where it's like, you know, the generals become basically like a dad and they're just, you know what? They understand that it's a possibility. Mm. They maybe even feel pulled by it, but nonetheless, they trust their dad, you know? So, I mean, there's different ways out. It's not like this is like a a home run. Right. Uh, But nonetheless, I think there probably will be some people who who will be a little perplexed by that. And, And of course, as Christians, we have to realize that there's deception so it seems, at least in the Old and New Testament, mm. the, they're usually directed at people, unbelievers. Right? I, I can't recall right. any case where it's directed at a believer, yeah. um, where God deceives a, a believer, someone faithful. Um, so, like, he might permit an evil spirit to deceive, or you know, something like yeah. that. Yeah, someone might say like Abraham, like he was deceiving him because he was gonna, he thought he was gonna kill his son, but he all all the while God didn't know. But then you could say, well, you know, God changes mind if you're an open theist or something. But yeah, there's there's, <laughs> there's some stuff in there. I, I, yeah, I think except, that, except even with that though, it's not like God causes a hallucination in Abraham or uh, God yeah. causes yeah, people faculty. Yeah, like, put the knife down and his son's not there, and and, yeah. and he, he doesn't say like he says go sacrifice, but he doesn't say I'm going to kill your son, or you know he he doesn't actually say something false. I, I that's think a good point. My memory, everything is consistent with truth there. So. Yeah, dang, that's a great point. So I think what what's really cool about you in in your work here is you're saying look the the Pandora's box thing that a lot of people bring against planning. A, right. It's, it's not as strong a case as you think. Right. And, right. and planning himself brings up the, the great pumpkin. And right. what, what you're saying is basically, yeah. Okay. You can believe in the great pumpkin. If he designed your cognitive faculties, if, he designed <laughs> it, and, and basically you're, you're taking out the content of the great pumpkin and you're putting in, got the attributes of right. God and his design plan for right. her. So you're just right. calling God great pumpkin and you probably shouldn't do that. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. So if, if you're like, well, hey, why think if, if theism is true, then it's probably warranted? Well, because if God exists, he's being all good. He'd want to create in me a way to know him in a personal way. And uh, he'd be powerful enough to do it. And, you know, yeah. you start listing God's properties. Uh, uh, he transcend me, you know. And, and, and so, okay, well, if your great pumpkin kind of like transcends you and 
uh, is all loving and wants a relationship with you and is powerful enough to do it. And it's just like, maybe you're really just talking about God, but like yeah. he has a particular interest in pumpkins or something. I think Planet gets <laughs> does something like that. So uh, yeah, that, 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 that seems, that seems right to me. Um, yeah. But at the end of the day, it's like, so what, you know, let's go yeah. ahead and say that, um, that, uh, that these other religious traditions can use plenty as epistemology. Hmm. Um, you know, uh, why think that just because two people disagree that that necessarily entails defeat, right? right. We don't think of that uh, about politics. <laughs> we don't yeah. think about that in reference to science, right? Two competing hypotheses could be examined, two different scientists, but we're not like, guys, we got to defeat it for both of y'all. Yeah. Namely, y'all's own disagreement. Well, right? unless I you're mean, Richard Feldman, right? And you, you bring up the, uh, we can maybe jump into that with uh, dis- disagreement literature, and you've you right, brought, right, right. Um, yeah. Let's can can we jump into that? Yeah, of course, of course. Yeah. So so in in recounting or discussing the uh, reliability of the census divinitatis, right, you, right. you bring up a couple of different points. There's cognitive science, which we kind of broach, divine hiddenness, right. and disagreement. So maybe we could start with disagreement, right. and uh, the philosophy textbook theft. Right, is that, is right, that fresh right. in your mind? I'm always I'm I'm impressed by how much your work is still in there because you know <laughs> for a lot of people you think he wrote the book he should know this but you get so in depth when you're you're right, writing right, this right. stuff it's it's really hard to remember a lot like if you think back yeah, on your papers yeah, yeah. and uh, who knows what i wrote but you do a great job of, of having oh, this fresh in your mind yeah that's kind of you yeah no it's always funny because like whenever i interview people for furthering you know for my podcast further than christendom yeah uh, usually the philosopher's like well, I had to go back in my book and had to like reread, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> make sure. I mean, that. That, uh, and and you know, you always get like the spouse who will be like, "So, uh, reading a good book there, huh?" <laughs> 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 That's awesome. uh, but uh, yeah, so um, yeah, so the the example that you gave is in reference to um, let, let's not ex- not directly related to disagreement but definitely at least indirectly related right yeah. so um there's this 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 case so maybe you think um that according to like third person point of view you know sort of an objective third person point of view um using the probabilities from this point of view so that means you can't take uh anything into consideration yeah. <laughs> that's not examinable by like a third person perspective right so think about like being in a court room sort of scenario right and uh you, you obviously can't like take out some of your experiences or memories right and put it <laughs> for everyone to, to to play so from a third person perspective um point of view maybe you think that you need to believe what's most probable hmm. and so uh that that seems false though and so uh you know take uh, let's say that you're known for um, stealing books, you know, I see you got a lot in the background there, right? So let's say that Parker is known for stealing books at his local half price bookstore or something like that. And, um, let's say that, uh, maybe they even have like Parker's face picture up on the wall at half price book <laughs> saying, watch out for this guy. This guy likes to steal books. You got my, my Parker's Pensy logo right there. Exactly. Great. Right yeah. there, right there. And, uh, you know, let's say that there was footage of a guy looking exactly like Parker and some eyewitnesses saying they saw Parker and maybe even DNA evidence saying this is Parker's DNA. Mm. And, uh, you know, say some books went missing from this third person perspective view, 
it looks damn probable that you <laughs> you yeah. stole the books. Right? Yeah. The probability yeah. is extremely high. <laughs> but it's like, well, what if you have like a distinct memory that you were like walking your dog on the beach uh, at the time you supposedly stole the, the books, right? Yeah. And let's say like your degree of warrant is so ridiculously high for you not stealing the books, right? For you walking the dog on the beach. Well, um, I mean, are we going to say that you need to switch your belief? Mm. <laughs> you you have a defeater now for your belief or like, I don't know, here's something um, that you might've watched. I watched it growing up. Uh, Prison Break. Right? Yeah, dude. So great show. 2006 yeah. or so. Um, yeah. Uh, was like one of my favorite shows. I even shaved my head constantly because like, yeah, I'm going to be like a prison break brother. Um, and uh, you know the the brother Lincoln Burroughs, he gets he gets set up right. There's like if I remember correctly, there's like camera evidence, might even be DNA evidence. There's like all this various evidence that makes it look like that he killed a, a senator's brother. Yeah. Right. Um, but but he is like a distinct memory. No, I did not kill. I did yeah. not. I did not kill him. Um, so in that case, we're going to be like, all right, Lincoln, you, you have a defeater here. You need to go with whatever is probable according to this third person perspective point of view. Yeah. No. And that seems, that just seems silly. That seems false. And so, um, yeah. So, so in that case, whenever you have defeat, and so even from a third person perspective view, they're like, well, listen, you three guys are arguing. You all think you're right. Mm-hmm. From where I'm standing, you should all just have defeat. Right. And that doesn't seem right to me. At the end of the day, if you're reflecting on mm-hmm. everyone disagreeing with you, but your faculties are designed to still continue to produce the belief in question, and you have warrant and you have a high degree of confidence, even still upon reflecting this sort of scenario, then yeah. on my view, you're you, you still have a warrant. You don't need to to de- uh, to have a defeater. And and more directly in reference to to um, just disagreement more generally, Plenty gives a great example. I think. Um, he talks about like, hey, let's say you and I are arguing about whether or not uh, it's okay to lie about your colleagues in order to advance your own career. Mm. And I say, yes, you say no. Let's say we're peers. We've read all the literature about this. We've talked to people. We have the same sort of experiences. But nonetheless, at the end of the day, we come to a different view on this. I think you're totally fine. (laughs) Uh, Still believe me, I don't think you have a defeater just because you have a peer who disagrees with you about this topic, right? right? Right. Um, and so, you know, and the, the idea itself just seems kind of self-defeating. And so hmm. if, if you're like, okay, well, let's say that whenever there's genuine peer disagreement, you have a defeater or, um, you know, something like that. Well, uh, what if you have uh, genuine peers who disagree with you about that? Ooh, <laughs> then okay. You have a defeater about that. And yeah. So, um, and of course, you could always just think you're not really an epistemic peer with the person you're disagreeing with, maybe you think right. you have special access. Like my sense is even autotis is functioning properly, yeah. but not this guy. Right. So yeah. Yeah. Th- those would be the ways that I would address. I like uh, that. Largely the- yeah. One of my buddies uh, studies epistemology at, at Northwestern. He brought this up and it freaked me out at first. Cause he's talking about Richard Feldman and he's right. There's, there's these people in his course that uh, the students and undergrad, and they all want to believe that reasonable people can disagree and right. more than atheists and Christians. And they all think that they're epistemic peers. They share their evidence, but He's like, no, it's not reasonable for you to continue to believe yours and not think that they're reasonable if you think you're peers. And so, right, like, right. yeah, well, then maybe you're just not peers. Maybe that's okay. I have, I have the sense. So, so you, you, you can go that route, or you could also just say, 
well, hey, if we're defining, you know, what's reasonable, what's rational by way of my faculties functioning properly and my faculties are designed to to continue producing this belief, even in light of pure disagreement, then I'm okay. So I'm what you call a steadfaster instead of a conciliatory. I I learned that maybe, maybe that's what planning was getting at where he's like, Am I supposed to work at not believing what I believe? Wouldn't that be irrational? Like, to just let, how how does one let go of their belief? You know, I, I let go of my belief that I'm sitting at desk. I still can't let go of my belief that P, uh, or in this case, I still can't let go of my belief that it's wrong to lie about your colleagues in order to advance your career. But I need a, I have a defeater, so I need to, you know, let go of my belief. What else can I do? You know, <laughs> right? Yeah, I'm going to start lying to start acting on that belief. You know. <laughs> Yeah, that's I, I I like that. I like that 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 style of well, why should I do that? Um I want to get into we've been going for a while. Thanks thanks so much for your time, man. This has been course, fantastic. Yeah. Um let's see. Let's I want to actually go to the swamp man. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I I was so excited to see you use this. I've heard I heard your interviews on like capturing Christianity and mm-hmm. this was way before I got into Davidson. And so okay. this last summer, I read tons and tons of Davidson. I love him. I love his triangulation argument. I'm trying to formulate my own thing from that. And then I saw you. I went back to your work, and I saw you use the Swamp Man. I was all yeah. fired up. Can you, can you recount the uh, the Swamp yeah, Man? Yeah. So let's, let's say that you know Parker's chilling in a swamp because that's what you know Parker does in his downtime. I actually do that. Yeah, I love turtles. And frogs <laughs> and Everyone at home's laughing. Like, yeah, that's just a normal day for him. Yeah. yeah. So let's say Parker, you know, he's chilling in the swamp and lightning strikes you know and hits a tree and like all these crazy conditions are just such that um while parker gets disintegrated (laughs) an identical replica of parker emerges from all these crazy conditions being in this area and parker uh let's call him swamp parker he looks like parker talks like parker has the same beliefs as parker if i'm like hey parker when did christopher columbus sail the ocean blue parker's like 1492 right um if I'm like, hey, what's the what, what's the the correct interpretation of quantum mechanics? <laughs> Parker would be like an Aristotelian approach, of course. <laughs> uh, you know, like not that multi-world stuff, or whatever. Yeah, yeah, Many none world. of that multi-world stuff. Uh, Many worlds interpretation. Um, yeah, and so um, you know, it seems like he's able to give reasons and arguments and beliefs, has the same beliefs, etc. In fact, no one even notices a difference. Like Swamp Parker just goes home because that's where he believes he lives. Right. Hmm. Um, um, and yeah, maybe he goes out continually to TA for, you know, his various classes and, you know, get his advanced graduate degrees in philosophy, theology, et cetera. Um, and so the idea is, does this Parker, Swamp Parker know? So you might initially think that he does know because, I mean, hey, he's able to have access to good reasons. His faculties are reliable, right? They meet sort of some internalist and externalist conditions. Mm. Um so it just seems like Parker knows. Swamp Parker knows. Um, and yet it's not like Swamp Parker has a design plan, so to speak. I mean, he came out from all these crazy conditions just so happening to, you know, hit each other in such the right way where he emerged. Yeah. And so he doesn't seem to have a design plan. And so t- t- traditionally, people have given this as a counterexample to proper functionalism. Hmm. And Plantinga's traditional response was to say, well, it's just not metaphysically possible. Right. So it's not a counterexample. Yeah. And so uh, what Kenneth Boyce and Andrew Moon and myself have done, uh, and Bergman as well, um, we've kind of said, okay, 
let's 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 say that Swamp Man is metaphysically possible. I, I I do tend to think that Swamp Man is metaphysically possible, or at least something very close to it is metaphysically possible. Um, you know, so what is a proper functionalist going to do? And there are various arguments where you kind of concede that Swamp Man is possible, but show actually he's evidence for proper function. Hmm. And so, um, uh, if you there's there's kind of two ways that I generally do this. Um, one way is to say, okay, what are epistem- what are epistemologists after? Epistemologists are after a what I call a tight connection to truth, a tight connection between the belief being produced from the faculties and that belief being true. There needs to be some sort of connection there. Um, and so uh, if we start talking about Swamp Man, it seems like, um, let's say Swamp Man produces the belief that there's an alligator in the swamp, when in fact there's an alligator in the swamp. Mm-hmm. It's not as if his faculty should be producing this belief, right? Um, so, and we can change it up a little bit. Let's say that he produces the belief that um, his girlfriend, Swamp Girl, <laughs> <laughs> is uh, in the swamp, but really it's an alligator. Yeah. Right? Like we could say that Swamp Man's faculties are malfunctioning, right? His faculties yeah. literally have no way in which they should or shouldn't produce beliefs uh, at all. And so. Because they're a product um, of chance, right? There's no exactly, design plan. Exactly. There's yeah. no design plan. And so just because he's producing true belief, it doesn't follow that um, that he actually knows because mm. there's a lot of luck in here. Remember what I said earlier enough luck sort of dissolves knowledge. And so. Yeah. Exactly. And so given that uh, his faculty shouldn't be producing these beliefs, but nonetheless they do, there's something serendipitous about this. And so uh, that's one approach. Another approach uh, formulated by Kenny Boyce and Andrew Moon was to say, what, why do people think that Swamp Man knows stuff? Well, here's a central intuition. The central intuition is that um, if two subjects produce the same belief in the same sort of an environment, right, and uh, in the same sort of way, and if one's warranted, then that means the other's warranted. Yeah. And so uh, they think of a, a counterexample to this and a comparison between Billy and Zork. And so Zork is this alien in this different planet or different universe where the um, quantum mechanics <laughs> make it such where, you know, some, some, some rule about quantum mechanics and physics, whatever your, the explanation is, um, makes it such that um, whenever you don't observe red, something red, the, the object that's red actually disappears, right? So cognitive science teaches us that really early on, um, infants have belief in object permanence, that hmm. um, the, the object still exists even if you're not observing it, right? And that's when they, they put a, a cloth over it or whatever, and you, you right. can do all kinds of fun <laughs> games with your kids and mess with them. Exactly, exactly. So let's say, let's say that Billy, though, on Earth, human baby, you know, um, human person, just like you and I are, uh, has a cognitive malfunction. And he produces the belief that whenever something is, that's red is not being observed, it no longer exists. Well, um, now let's say that Billy gets abducted by Zork's species and they bring him back to their, to their universe, their planet. And uh, now let's say they put him next to Zork. They're in the same environment, right? They have the same sorts of experiences. Um, and, uh, you know, they produce the same sort of belief. Mm. Namely, when they, uh, they have like a red box, they put it away. Both infants produce the belief that the red box no longer exists. Yeah. And so um, what do you do in this case? 
Well, it seems like Zork knows maybe, but it doesn't seem like Billy knows. Well, why doesn't Billy know? Well, because he doesn't have proper function mm. while Zork does. Yeah. And so it seems like the best explanation for why he does is proper function. So not only yes. is it a defeater for the sensual intuition, but it's also sort of positive reason for proper function. Um, there's a, Jeff Tolley uh, recently came out with a paper where he tries to respond to this and argue that's not the case, that it's actually not evidence for proper functionalism, that a certain reliableism can accommodate these intuitions. Hmm. But in this volume, um, I respond to him and say, actually, that's not so. <laughs> and then yeah. uh, Boyce and Andrew Moon also have a new paper coming out that also responds to him in more detail. Oh, awesome. um, they'll also reference uh, what I say there. So, um, yeah, so that's kind of how Swamp Man relates to proper function. Yeah. Overall, it's a motivation for believing in proper functionalism yeah. rather than an objection, I think. I love that. It, it, rem- it reminds me a little bit of, of Richard Taylor's like White Stones uh, analogy or intuition pump. Are you familiar with, with that at all? It's like an argument from reason kind of thing. Ah, uh, um, yes. Yes, I think so. I think yeah, so, so you could be on like a tram to Disney World and you look mm-hmm. out on the hill and there's a bunch of White Stones that says, welcome to Disney World. And there's right. at least you right. know two possible ways it's there. One is that uh, someone designed it and put it there and said, welcome to Disney World. And the other is that really implausible, but you know, logically possible that a yeah. uh, dump truck dumped a bunch of white stones and it spells it all right. out. If you think that uh, the first is the case, someone's trying to uh, give you content, you can read it for content and you can say, well, maybe I'm in, I'm in Texas and they don't have Disney world. So <laughs> someone's lying to me or, or yeah, maybe. Right. I am. But if you think the second is the case that it happened by accident, you'd be an idiot to read that for content. Right. I believe it right. came there by accident. But yet I'm going to read right. it. And, and so I think the analogy over to Swamp Man is like, you're, you think that about your cognitive faculties that they came by chance, and yet you're trusting them to tell you that they came by chance. And you can you think that there there's this tight connection, as you say, to truth there. Mm-hmm. But yet you have this undercutting defeater, I would say. And maybe there's, it's, it's self-defeating, thinking that they, they came by chance, and yet you're using them for truth. Yeah, so I, I think it gets into two things. One, um, I think what it amounts um, Swamp Man to be is like the ultimate walking Gidier example. Right? Yeah. Okay. And two, um, what that uh, I, I think also it kind of relates to a different argument that Planet comes up with, known as the evolutionary argument yeah. against naturalism, right? Mm-hmm. Or he's like, hey, if your cognitive faculties are the product of random mutation, why trust them? Yeah, and including the belief in naturalism that it produces, and this is kind of how you get the self-defeat uh, thing that you mentioned. And so, yeah, uh, so I, I do take it that the proper function arguments are distinct from the evolutionary argument against naturalism. Yeah. Um, but they so in uh, Plenigus debate with Thule, um and their book Knowledge of God, yes. uh, he gives them as two distinct arguments. But they are yes, that one. Nonetheless, they are I think related. So. And, and that's what I wanted to talk to you about. So um, we're going to do a spate of questions pretty quick here, but I wanted to. To finish up with this, because mm-hmm. you, you kind of came into apologetics, I think early on with Greg Bonson, is that? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And so, so you're familiar with the language of transcendental arguments, and I was okay. all fired up to see you use that in your religious epistemology book. Right. That was fantastic. Right. And so, um, William and Craig, in in the Five Views on Apologetics book, I think Zondervan maybe he says planning as proper function is a transcendental argument, and Van Til's out. Uh, the the new has come. Planning <laughs> is the, the the real one. Look to him. So you're, you're arguing, let's just, would you argue that proper functionalism in the Plantingian vein, is that a transcendental argument for, for a designer mm-hmm. of our cognitive faculties? I wouldn't argue that uh, Plantingian epistemology is a transcendental argument. I would argue that it can be, has the resources 
to so that you could formulate one very easily. Mm, okay. Um, and so if you think proper functions necessary, sort of a pre uh, is necessary for knowledge, and you think God is a precondition uh, to make proper function intelligible, right? To use very Bonsignian language there. Yeah, sure. Um, then uh, it seems like you know God's a precondition to make knowledge intelligible, and so uh, yeah, I think you can develop a transcendental argument there. That's fantastic. So, um, so just bringing it all back before we go into our, our spate of questions here. Um, so, Tyler, I can know what I had for breakfast this morning without uh, demonstrating that because your faculties are designed in a certain way. There's, as long as the programming's good and it's working all rightly, then yeah. And and likewise, I can believe I can have belief in God, believe it exists right. without without similar arguments for the same exact reasons. That's right. awesome because yeah, the way you're hardwired. Love it. Okay, so now to the really important stuff. Uh, who's okay. the best? Really important. Yeah, who's the best Ninja Turtle? Leonardo for sure. Leonardo. He's okay. he, he's he's got the heart. I know everyone like Raphael. You know, yeah, because he's kind of like the road. Rude. He's kind of like Logan in X Men. That's right, Rude Raph. But uh, uh, Leonardo had like the heart and the leadership. I think yeah. to really get it done. Yeah. yeah, that's true. Okay, so uh, this kind is actually like Cyclops and X Men. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Oh, man, Cyclops kind of nerd, but I, I feel what you're saying. The leadership there. What what happens uh, when someone gets all the Dragon Balls? What what's the deal with that? You, you get a wish from a dra- oh, dragon. Oh, is that what? Yeah, a dragon yeah, comes you, out. Yeah, yeah, and you get a wish from the Dragon Balls. Dang. And then they, you they can like wish out. people back to life, for example, or, you know, wish for immortality or okay. depending on how strong the Dragon Balls are, you know, then like you got the super Dragon Balls, which oh, I didn't know that grant you more powerful wishes and so forth. But yeah, yeah. And then they spread out. They kind okay. of sh- so there's like there was an early episode of or like young Goku or something. And he's trying to track down all the Dragon Balls. Yeah. Right, what, right. what did he wish for? Did you ever track him down? Uh, well, it depends on what era. <laughs> oh, snap. So okay. they, 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 there's, there's several times when the dragon comes. But uh, and I think the general rule is like you have to wait a year to, to reuse them. So you can't just like keep finding uh, them yeah, and then keep using back. them over and over again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. Okay. All right. So here's another really important one. Are pumpkin spice lattes, Target, Taylor Swift, and, and uh, Visco Girls, are they properly basic? <laughs> yeah. So uh, I had no idea. Like when I was doing my PhD, man, I was so away from pop culture. Like mm. I, uh, I, yeah, I was not in. Right? I was just like I trapped myself in a flat, being a dad and like just working on my PhD for three years. Yeah, and then like I came back, came to Houston, start teaching, and started like getting back to becoming a normal human being. And uh, uh, I started realizing people were using this word "basic" in a in a really weird way, and I was yeah. like. What, what is this? What do you mean by basic, right? And then I told them that my gamer tag is properly basic, and they all started laughing at me. <laughs> That's fantastic. Um, okay, how about uh, recess or rugrats? Rugrats. I, I had a giant Tommy Pickles uh, stuffed animal that I remember I got for Easter once, and and uh, uh, yeah, I, I, I watched a lot of the episodes and. I remember going to the movies when Rugrats came to theaters. Yeah. So that actually, that's a sociological question because uh, I would pick recess because I didn't have cable growing up. So we can tell <laughs> who had cable and who didn't have cable. Here. <laughs> uh, how about I did Crash... like recess? I did like yeah. Yeah. Recess was, was, was gold. Crash Bandicoot or uh, Spyro the dragon. So I played both on my PlayStation yeah. one. Yeah. Um, but I will 
probably have to go with Crash Bandicoot. Yeah. Because he looked like a dog, and I was always a big fan of dogs. That's okay. probably literally the reason why I preferred it. Crash is sweet. How about uh, a Ring Pop or Pop Rocks? Uh, ring Pop, for sure. Yeah. I don't I don't want things popping uh, in my mouth, and I want to, <laughs> yeah, it's just, it, yeah. yeah. Oh, okay, uh, Halo or Call of Duty? Uh, definitely now, I would say Call of Duty. That's my okay. favorite video game genre. That's okay. like... Uh, if I'm not playing with my my sons, uh, I'm playing Call of Duty. Um, but uh, back then, I was big uh, when Halo One released. I was like, yeah. this is the best thing in the whole world." So I loved the uh, like the scenes. I love when they're when the aliens are like Arbiter. It's so epic. I love uh, that, that stuff. final scene in Halo, where it's like it's got the like monks chanting sort of music you know it's like this crazy gaudy music yeah and yeah like really dark and all apocalyptic it's just yeah not nothing cool. beats being 12 and playing that you know that's right um how about uh jordan or bron bron uh neither but neither? i have to pick yeah yeah, yeah. If i have to pick though i'm going with jordan all right nice i can dig that yeah yeah no i um, i uh yeah I'm, I'm, I'm as you know i, I cheer for the rockets and uh, right. texas teams in general so yeah uh, yeah. Okay. Uh, a couple more serious ones. More actually serious ones. I know I ruined that. Now everyone has a defeater for trusting me. Uh, no. But um, so Mar- uh, Frank Jackson has this yeah, this yeah. article about you know what Mary didn't know, and Mary's yeah. this this color theorist who knows everything about color except that she lives in a black and white uh locked room and they probably paint her skin black and white too it's terrible then she walks out and she learns something about colors because she has these qualia experience what it's like to experience red does this is really interesting for me because i'm I'm trying to be at this nexus of theology and philosophy much like you are um does god know what it's like to eat a chicago style Mm. hot dog Mm. yeah this is a really good question so um yeah i'm a classical theist Mm -hmm. Right. And so um, I think God is identical to his knowledge. And um, I think that um, God, uh, for example, doesn't know certain experiences in an extremely direct sense. Like he does, he doesn't know what it's like to, to, to sin Mm -hmm. in one sense. There's another sense where um, I think you can know what it's like to sin, right? So, um, for example, like uh, I think Ryan Ryan Mullins gives this in his recent um, book on God and um, emotions. Uh, you know, imagine that there's like uh, these. Imagine there's this person who doesn't experience pain. But nonetheless, maybe this alien race can invent some sort of device where it allows them to like simulate what it would be like to feel pain or something yeah. like that. Yeah. And so maybe God could have knowledge of what it's like to sin in this sense, right? Yeah. Or uh, maybe God can know what it's like to eat, did you say, Chicago style hot dog or something. Yeah, that's right. right. That's like, the best. No ketchup. Like, yeah. <laughs> like uh, in, in that sense. Um, of course, if the knowledge ultimately entails um, uh, weakness from God, right. um, passivity on my view. Yeah, um, change. Then, like then, that, right? Yeah, change. Yeah, yeah. then I, I wouldn't want him <laughs> to have that knowledge. <laughs> and I, I'd be fine with saying that God d- 
doesn't have that sort of experiential knowledge. Um, he, he's limited just, by his, his perfection. If you exactly. like, he, he can't same, become less. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Same thing for sinning. But nonetheless, I think that there is a way where he can know what it's like, you know, in the same way that this alien race knows. So yeah. I think there's probably a distinction between the two. Yeah. Um, but I think God probably could only have one of those. So okay. that's my, my view. I'm not a metaphysician, but. Right. That's, yeah. That's no, that's great. View. Yeah. That's really great. Um, okay. And then just wanted to finish up here. So uh, planning a, is planning as epistemology, is it a naturalized epistemology? Mm, yes. Right. Okay. So naturalized epistemology is like um, kind of getting away from the deontology. So if you think about Descartes, right, it's yeah. all about deontology and Locke, all about deontology. And uh, there's sort of an emphasis away from deontology and uh, sort of emphasizing science and what science can tell us what we know. Right. Mm -hmm. And so if you think about how I've appealed to cognitive science and yeah. talked about our computer, our brains being kind of like computers and that sort of thing. Right. So science plays like a big role in our epistemology. And so if what you mean by naturalized epistemology is something like, well, it's a move away from deontology and a move to emphasize science and what it hel helps inform our epistemology, then I would say, yes, it is a naturalized epistemology. But okay. planning is epistemology is a special type of naturalized epistemology because it's a naturalized epistemology that can only be made that we can only make sense of <clears throat> if we invoke supernaturalism. Yes. So that's what's so huge. And I love that. And then also um, as an extra just kick to all the naturalists, he develops this evolutionary argument against naturalism for anyone who wants to hold that view, but still be a naturalist. Well, no, you don't get to have that. I'm kicking you out with this argument. Which right. is and I think, I think Tom Crisp has developed the best version of that. Okay. Uh, and Eric Baldwin and I try to take Tom Crisp's version and make it a self-defeat sort of argument as yeah. planning as original EWAN was intended to do. Yeah. But yeah, uh, Tom Crisp and the natural uh, Blackwell companion naturalism okay. basically just applies it to metaphysical beliefs or like beliefs that require like high level abduction. So high, high sort of high level science and metaphysical beliefs. Yeah, that's, that's fantastic. I, I want to get into that more. Um, Jim, Jim Slagle is a guy mm -hmm. who has written, are you familiar with his work at all? Yeah. Mm -hmm. I, I love yeah. this guy. He, he just wrote a, uh, it's called evolutionary argument against naturalism i think so yeah. it's a whole book on that and i'm uh he sent me the 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 preprint or whatever so i gotta read that and get nice. into it more nice. but uh dude i'd love to have you on to talk about that a little bit more sometime would sure. you? yeah would yeah you? of course That'd be fantastic um yeah you can ask, ask me more pop culture questions yes or, dude you know. i love it now that you're you're done with your phd you can uh, <laughs> avoid uh calling yourself basic in, in a new way or something <laughs> <laughs> right, yeah right, exactly well awesome man uh thanks again for coming on for all your time here uh, all right, man. No, absolutely. Yeah. So, so this has been Parker's Pensies. Uh, we could talk about this more, and hopefully uh, someday we will. But for now, it's going to have to do it. And uh, as always, all glory to God. <laughs>